0: You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. I'm going to encourage you to pick up a Bible. And turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, use the one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own one, take that one as our gift to you. That's page 875 in the church Bible, Matthew chapter 21. In your bulletins, you'll see places for you to make notes and follow along. The main points are all in there. Now, this is a text that if you've been coming to church for a while, you have probably are very familiar with, the Palm Sunday scene. Now, I, wanna, I hope to do a couple of things, pull out some things that maybe you've uh, never seen or haven't caught your attention before, and also reignite um, an excitement uh, and a gratefulness uh, for what this event means for us. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read the first 11 verses together, and then we're going to go through it. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and they will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on the colt, a fowl. Full of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed. They brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those followed behind him shouted, Hosanna, Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's take a minute and let's pray together. God, I believe that you are the same one who created everything, that you are a singular being, and yet you present yourself. You are three persons. I believe that you sustain the earth with no outside help. I believe that you created me and every person in this room. I believe that you came uh, once to this earth as a man 2,000 years ago to give yourself for us. And I believe that you're coming again in the future. I pray, Lord, that each of us would be able to um, see the significance of your first coming and, and just what it means for our lives now and what it means for our lives in eternity. I pray it would give us a fresh excitement uh, for Easter. I pray you would help me, a simple man, uh, to talk about this great event and give you the honor you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we approach uh, the Easter weekend, which is the most uh, spectacular, the most important event in human history, I want us to go back in our minds uh, one thousand nine hundred ninety roughly years ago, to the place that this took place in. It's a very different place uh, than the one we've grown up in. 33 AD, in the time when the average person like us would have one or two outfits to get us through our days. And a shower, that wasn't something any one of us would regularly be able to have. In the day in which a person would eat two meals uh, a day of of bread dipped in olive oil, maybe with some dates or some cheese, to complement it. In the day when the average lifespan of a man was 55 years. In the day when 98% of people in the average town, historians tell us, were illiterate. In the day where the average Israelite would uh, give 70 to 80% of their income in taxes. The day when people had to travel in groups from town to town because there was marauders that lived in the hills and in the valleys who would take advantage of them. A very different day than the ones that we grew up in, but also similar in some ways. In those days, the people were lonely. They yearned to be saved, to be loved, to be cared for. They were waiting with anticipation for the coming of the Messiah that had been prophesied for thousands of years. Waiting eagerly to be connected. And even though we are the most connected uh, society in history, where uh, with the flick of a button I can connect with somebody in Africa or in China, we are the most disconnected, the most lonely, The most miserable group of people in our country's history. People yearning to be loved, to be cared for, to know that they matter. They longed in those days for a leader to rise up, someone who who had a heart for the people, uh, someone who was compassionate, uh, someone who didn't see people as a means for their benefit, a leader who would lead from the front, not from the rear a leader who was truly after God's own heart. See, the people had tried self-rule. And if you're doing the Bible reading plan with our church, you're in the book of Judges. I don't have to remind you of the sick tragedies that we see play out when humans put their best effort forward without God and determine what is right. And of course, we know the book of Judges, uh, there's a common saying throughout it, and they did what was right in their own eyes. We live in a time where we believe that self-rule is the best rule, where coming under any sort of authority is a no-no. Coming under church elders' authority, nope. Coming under your husband's authority, nope. Children coming under the authority of their parents, nope. Coming under the authority of a boss, nope. Don't want anything to do with it. I'm probably the best one to decide what's good for me and what's good for everyone else. And we can see how well that is working out. We live in the days of selfies, where it's all about self. Where uh, young people uh, look for any sort of gratitude and they fill their days with making TikTok videos, hoping that just a few people will like it and they can feel good about themselves for a few seconds before they try and do it again. In those days, it had been a thousand years since King David ruled. 1,000 years of evil kings with a few decent ones thrown in there. But they had a promise, see? A promise that they were looking forward to, a promise that they were hoping on, that out of David's line would come the Messiah, the king, the one who would save them, the one who would bring peace to their hearts, the one whose, whose kingdom would stretch from the one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. They were watching. They were waiting. And then... A week before the Passover to them, a week before what we would call Easter, it says, our text says, that Jesus approached Bethpage. And that's a place outside of the place called Bethany, which is, Bethany was a place outside of Jerusalem. Bethany is where Lazarus was healed. So we could call this place, Bethpage, a suburb of a suburb outside of the major city. So Jesus approaches, it tells us with his disciples, with a large crowd. And he tells his disciples to do something. It's rather strange if you know the gospels. It's something we only see once, but it's recorded four times in every gospel. He says, Go and get me some transportation. If he was in modern days, he says, he would have been saying, Go get me some wheels. He never did this before. Everywhere Jesus went, he walked with the people, one of the people. Luke records for us it was an unused colt, a young colt, a young donkey. And the Old Testament animals, uh, in the Old Testament when the animals were going to be sacrificed, they were always an animal without blemish, or unused. But this animal wasn't going to be sacrificed. On this animal would carry the once and for all sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the one who gave himself for humanity. This was Jesus' plan. This wasn't something Jesus did on a whim. He didn't get tired and say, you know what? I could really use a ride. It was planned. We see in verse 4, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be. He didn't ask for a horse like the Romans would ride, the much more prestigious things or the rich Jews would ride. No, 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 he says. Give me a donkey. So I know there's some, a lot of people now coming to our church uh, that didn't grow up in the church, and they don't really know the lingo, and, and that's great, and, and we want you to be coming. So I'm just going to clear up a few things. What's a prophet, and what is a prophecy, you might be asking? Well, a prophet is, is uh, someone who speaks on behalf of God, that God speaks a message through them, and they communicate it to a group of people, to God's people, to those that will listen. Now, there are real prophets and there are false prophets the bible says a real prophet uh, a real prophet says a message and it comes true a false prophet says a message for whatever reason could be for personal gain could be for their position could be because satan is speaking through them and it doesn't happen and the bible is serious about prophets and false prophets. so much so that God says, to those who say they represent me and say messages to people and they don't come true, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, they were to be killed. That's how serious God took false representation of himself. And so that should be a precaution to us. In the days when there's so many YouTube prophets, some of you might listen to some of them, they're convincing, uh, but it's not a career. It's not to make money. It's a calling. It's a tough calling. And we can judge whether a prophet is true, really from God, if what they say actually happens. And so if you're listening to the YouTube prophet and, and he says, this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, and this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, it's probably time to unsubscribe. So what is a prophecy then? Well, a prophecy is a future event uh, given by God through a prophet in order to warn, communicate, call back, encourage, prepare us for something that God is going to make happen. It's like a marker that God sets out in the future and says, this is going to happen. Could be a week in advance, could be 10 years in advance, could be 100 or 1,000 years in advance. So that when it happens, humanity looks back and says, God said that was going to happen, and now it's happened. I can trust God is in charge of time, that he is carrying out his plan through the world, and that his word is reliable. So a perfect example of prophecies is the nation of Israel. Uh, Back in the days of Abraham, God prophesied that once out of this man's line would come a nation. It would be called Israel. God also prophesied when it became a nation that if the people turned away from him and turned to false gods, he would warn them and warn them and call them back and encourage them back to him. But eventually he would allow them, he'd take his hands of protection off them and allow them to be conquered. And so in the 200 years leading up to Israel's destruction, he was warning them and calling them back, but they would not listen. And so in 560 B.C., God allowed, and as he had spoken about through the prophet Jeremiah, the Babylonians to conquer them. And, and leading up to those days, they're like, no way it's going to happen, not going to happen. And then it happened. But he also said through the prophet Jeremiah, I will call you back as a nation. Once you have called out to me, I will bring you back. And a hundred years later, he reestablished them. They weren't a nation anymore. It was a desolate wasteland. And then he brought them back as a nation. And everyone said, look, what God says is true. But come Jesus' time, 400 years later, the people had turned away from God again. And Jesus stood at the temple and said, this is all going to be gone, destroyed. And they said, you're crazy, Jesus. It's not going to happen. And then after Jesus had gone to the cross in 70 A.D., The Romans destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the temple. No longer was it called Israel. It was called Palestine. They scattered the people all over the world. Yet the Jews stayed distinct. Never happened before. As captives, as aliens in other nations for 1,900 years. And you know what? For 1,900 years, people said, well, the Bible says that in the second coming of Jesus, Israel will be a nation. But it's not a nation, so the Bible must be wrong. Until 1948, when Israel became a nation again, and what God had said would happen, what Jesus said would happen, 1900 years happened again, which is, encourages us that the Bible is true and reliable. You know, I know how many times a nation has not been and been and not been and been and not been and then been zero once Israel. Besides that no other times. So we can trust that the Bible is true. And there was between 400 and 575 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. At least 300 of those were answered in Jesus's first coming, meaning they came true. And the chances of all of those coming true in one man was nearly impossible. One or two or three, sure, but not 300. But there are still prophecies that will happen, it says, in his second coming. And so Matthew tells us, he's encouraging us, hopefully you understand uh, the importance of this, that what is taking place now is to fulfill what was said 500 years before. Verse 5, verse 4 and 5 together, let's read it again. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle And mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, full of a donkey. This prophet's name was Zechariah. He spoke 500 years before this moment that. That is happening. That would be like somebody in the 1500s saying that at some point some guy is going to fly down in this, this flying machine, and it's going to have these spinning propellers on it, and out of it uh, will be a, step a guy who flies it, and he'll have a headset on, which he'll be able to talk to people uh, a long distance away. You'd say, "Well, that's bonkers if you were living in the 1500s." But then if you were living now, you'd say, "Wow, somebody must have had an inside line." Zechariah said this 500 years before this in Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. It prophesies about Jesus, the people's king. When I say people, I don't mean a specific background or a specific race. I mean human beings, a king for the human beings for us, for regular people like us, from the poorest of the poor to the rich of the rich. He was a God who was one of us, embracing everything it meant to be human. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 say, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. What is amazing about Jesus is he is an accessible king an accessible king. You take any of the false gods from any other of the religions in the world and you cannot have access to that God. He will not let you know him. If you are a Muslim and you serve Allah, Allah will never come down and be amongst the people because Allah is holy and he is totally separated. He cannot be around people. And if you ask a Muslim, and I've asked many, do you know if you're going to heaven or not? They cannot tell you yes or no. They will say, I hope that my good works will be enough. And every day they have to do things to keep Allah happy with them. But he would not come down to give himself for them. The gods of the Hindus, study them too. There are hundreds of them. They are far off God. They are beasts and dragons and and things that, that no human can connect with. You have to continually sacrifice to them in order to be in their good graces, in order for them to bless your crops and to bless your family. And the Buddhists, well, they don't serve a god at all. They wouldn't say they serve a god. They would say everything is God or the universe is God, that that chair has God in it, that you have God in it, that the dog has it, that the bugs. And if you do enough good, then you'll ascend to a higher plane. There is no God like Jesus. There is no king like Jesus that would make himself accessible to us. David was the only king we ever see really born poor, a common person, to know what it's like to suffer but then Jesus was born poor. Uh, most of the rulers, whether they're kings of the world or presidents or prime ministers, uh, they were born rich. Most of them have silver spoons in their mouth. And if they weren't born rich, they usually tend to live wealthy. They live in castles and palaces, ride in chariots and armored cars. They don't eat the food that we eat. They don't mingle with regular people. But Jesus became a man came to this earth. The people actually came to him. Imagine that. Regular people came and had access to God. They presented their needs to him, and he heard them. He looked them in the eyes. They touched him, and he touched them. He listened. He cared. He made himself accessible. That should get your attention. A God who was not only accessible then but is accessible now to you, to I? What an amazing reality. I don't have to go through a priest, through another priest, through another pastor to get to God. I can go directly to him. That's the best news on this earth. I picture Jesus, who could have rode a big steed, but asked for the peasant's animal. I can picture him riding into Jerusalem on that young colt, not even fully developed, The people can touch him. The people can see him. He can look them in the eyes. There he is in his rag clothes, just like the rest of the people, sweating just like the people are. They can see him, and he can see them. And we have to understand, we have to really get this in our heads. God is a God who cares. He genuinely cares. Most of you would know my story. that when I came back after 26, uh, coming back from overseas, I found myself a single parent raising uh, my two kids on my own and then I became a Christian a year later. I can remember sometime close to age 30, I'm a full-time military instructor raising these two kids. I'm dealing with this um, problem that I had uh, where I was always sick and always on medication from something I picked up overseas. And I was hospitalized from it. And on that, my father was in and out of uh, an insane asylum. And I was the only family member to take care of him and try and get him to his appointments and drive him there. And and I can feel at, at this time, I can remember being so tired and so at the end of my rope. And I can remember being... Uh, I can't go on I don't know how I'm going to do this to handle all of these responsibilities I'm so tired God I don't know how I'm going to go on I can remember that I can remember listening to the audio Bible as I was driving and listening to Matthew 11 verse 28 and 30 when Jesus said come unto me all you who are heavy laden and weary I will give you rest Take your yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I would cry out to God and he would come to me and comfort me. He would wrap me in his love. He would let me know I was not alone. He would give me the strength I needed for that day. Uh, He was so gracious to me, and I knew that he cared. That's the God we have access to, a God who cares, who's accessible. He's a humble God, too, a humble God. Let's just read one line from Zechariah again. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Is humble, riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. That's hard for us to understand in our human minds. Usually, people with very much, with a lot of power, uh, they often are prideful, and and usually a lot of people that are loving, uh, they're often powerless. But we have a hard time understanding that God is all powerful and just as well as loving and compassionate. That is hard. He's humble for us to know. Meekness means to have great power, but to hold that power back. That's what meekness means. We have a hard time understanding a God like that. I was talking to my friend Jay this week. Jay and I served overseas. We were on a hunting trip uh, about two years ago in Alberta uh, with another army buddy of mine, and and I shared the gospel with Jay because he knew me as a very different man. And since then, Jay's been reading the Bible on his own, and so every couple of months uh, he calls me and I answer his questions for him as he, he goes through it. And so he was wrestling with how can God be fully man. And fully human at the same time. So the best example I had at the time was I said, imagine the king of England, the most prestigious uh, king in, in, in the world. He's got so many rights and he's got so much power and authority. Imagine he puts aside his, his rights and his authorities and his privileges and goes and lives as the most peasant and poor people amongst England. In England, And he doesn't wear the fancy clothes and he doesn't use his privileges and rights. And he doesn't call his army. And, and people treat him badly and they spit in his face and they beat him and mock him and make fun of him. And he still doesn't react. He puts aside his power so that he can know us, love us. And then he sacrifices himself to pay our debts, to pay the common man's debts. Imagine that, and that was the best example I could come up with at the time. But so much more did the creator of everything and the sustainer of everything put aside his godliness to come and live and die as one of us. He is humble, fully capable, of paying us back for all of our sins and dealing with all of the evil at any second, but waiting patiently in meekness and humility. He is for the people. He's for people, human beings. He loves them. Hebrews 2, verse 17 to 18 says, Therefore, he had had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If we could only get and understand that God is for us and is not against us, that he desires to bring us close, oh, that would radically transform our lives. We would not be as anxious as we are. We would not be as lonely and depressed as we are. We would not be so carried away with the trivial things of this world. We would be throwing ourselves like the woman that, that came in and, and cried at Jesus' feet with such gratefulness, the prostitute, that Jesus would love her. That's the kind of people we'd be. We'd be an unstoppable people, the most loving, caring people in the world if we could just get that. that God is not like human leaders. He's not like the Pharisees who Jesus says in Matthew 23 verse 4, they tie up heavy burdensome loads and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. If Easter is anything it reminds us that God is for people. You can't get any more for people than coming and living with us and loving us and being patient with us and then giving yourself for us. And if he asks us to carry a burden, he's going to give us what we need. He's going to carry it with us. If we have to suffer, he's going to suffer with us and give us what we need. Look at verse 6. The disciples went on and did just as Jesus directed. Now, that may seem pretty straightforward to you, but that should be a mind-blowing concept in our days. His followers, Jesus's, do what Jesus says. I'll even make this simpler. They went and did exactly what he directed. And that is a kindergarten version of what a Christian is. It's someone that goes and does what Jesus asks them to do. And I know that there are people in churches who have determined that they don't need to do what Jesus asked them to do, but they can still be a Christian. I'm not sure where they get that from, and sometimes, you know, we have to own up to the reality that the greatest excuse for why people don't want to even know about Jesus is they say, look, the church is full of hypocrites. And, you know, the most, uh, the most used example that I would get in our day is the residential schools. Uh, I don't want anything to do with God in the church because look at what they did to the residential schools. And, and I say uh, to those people, I say, well, I don't see those people as Christians at all. Because if Jesus, who embraced the children, it says that, that the children, he loved the little children, he blessed the little children, that he let them crawl all over him, and he says, protect uh, those who are innocent and vulnerable. Uh, give yourself for them. If that's what Jesus says, and they go and do what they did, that's not a follower of Jesus. That's a follower of Satan. So it matters if we do what Jesus tells us to do. It does matter. I remember I met this guy once and and I met him at a conference and I was talking to him and he's telling me about how his life used to be and now he's a Christian and he was a relatively new Christian, a year or two old, and and he's telling me about his life and he says he has a daughter uh, that he's not connected with and I said, oh, how come? And he said, well, uh, I I realize that if if I'm involved in her life, then I have to pay child support and, and then I won't be able to afford the life that I have now, I thought to myself. Well, wait a second, Jesus is pretty clear that if you bring a child into this world, you're to love them and care for them and and teach them the love of Jesus Christ and be there in their lives and that Jesus says uh, or Paul says that if you won't provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever and somehow you've determined that you don't have to take care of that child. Religion is to just uh, change what God says and then slap a... Christian title on it. But faith is believing that God's way is right and going and doing it. That's the simple way of what a Christian is. You want to know what a Christian is? It's saying, I believe you're true God and that your ways are right and I'm going to do them. And then as you do them, you become. It becomes more about being. That is the ultimate pursuit of a Christian, to become like Jesus, to be like him. And Jesus says, they will know you by your fruit. People will know you are a follower of mine by what your life produces. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we an accessible person who's interested in the lives of people around us? Are we humble people? Are we people who put others before ourselves? That's a question every one of us should look at. Are you a person that other people would say take a vested interest in other people's lives? That, that you care about their lives? Not just people who are like you and think like you, but other people, messy people. Are you interested in their lives? And are you an approachable person? Uh, could they come up to you and see that you care about them? Are you real around them? Or are you putting on the Christian Sunday smile, pretending like you're perfect and like you don't have your own messes? We can't really connect with people on a deep level if we're not real about our struggles in life. Are you a humble person? And now I say this, we're all working towards this and none of us are perfect. And the best person I could ask is your spouse. Because they see the real you. Are you somebody that when you mess up can come and say, you know what, I messed up. Uh, Somebody that will put the needs of the other person that won't treat them like garbage when they don't treat you the way you want to be treated. We could ask the kids. Are you gentle? The kids of a church. Is that person a gentle person? Are they a lowly, meek person? Because an adult, we're big, we're intimidating to kids, but kids are great watchers. They can sniff out the fakeness. And and kids will flock to a person who magnifies the love of Jesus. There's some people in this church, they just, Jesus oozes out of them and the kids love them. They go to these people. I, I see it every Sunday because they know that person is safe. That person loves me. That person is interested in me. They don't see me as a nuisance. Get away from me. Sometimes Christians lose the ability to smile. We've lost the ability to smile. We walk around with stern faces like this. I love Jesus and he lives in me. Really? Sometimes Christians can be as stale as a 10-year-old piece of bread. But that's not the Jesus we follow. Who loved the little children. Who blessed the little children. That's who he desires us to be. The apostles went and did as he asked them. Verse 7. They took the donkey and the colt and they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them and a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who were followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven!" Now, you might ask yourself a few things if, if you're not really aware of what's going on here. It's like, what's with the coats, what's with the palm branches, and what's with Hosanna? What's that name? Okay, well, the palm branches and the coats, uh, that was a tradition of showing great honor and respect to a conquering king, an incoming king. It's like rolling out the red carpet, we could say, in our days, and, and the buglers are, are there, and, and everything that if, if the king of England came here that they would do. And some people thought, as we talked about last week, that he was here to overthrow the Romans and the Jews. And so they're ready. They're stoked. The king has come, and he's going to set us free. Now, that word Hosanna is translated meaning, oh, save now, or please save. So it is both, and we've got to understand this Greek is a much richer language than ours. It is both a cry for help and a cry for happiness. So if I was to, to put it in plainer language of what the people are saying, they're saying, save us, Messiah, who comes to fulfill God's mission on earth. Save us with all the power of heaven behind you, anointed one. That's what they're saying. So they were worshiping him. Some were worshiping him only because he thought, they thought he was there to free them from physical oppression. But he was there to free them from spiritual and mental oppression. And so when we sang Hosanna as a New Testament believer, what we're saying is, God, thank you so much for saving us from the power of sin. Now save us from the burdens that we carry. Relieve us from the oppression that we feel on this earth. And we are to remember that he is the only one worthy of worship, Jesus that is. John Piper puts it nicely, he said, worship is an inward feeling and an outward action that reflects the worth of God. And so our worship, yeah, worshiping in song is a type of worship. And yes, praying is a type of worship. And loving other people is a type of worship. And what we do with our lives is a type of worship. All of those things tell the world and tell God how worthy or how much he is worth to us. And so you might say, well, what is it that I worship? Well, here's some questions you can ask yourself. What do you tend to focus on in your life? What do you desire the most in life? What gets your best attention in life? Where is your hope placed in life? Those things will point you towards what has first place in your life. And what has first place in your life is most likely what you worship. But there's only one worthy of worship. It's worthy of your best attention, your hopes, your desires. Everything else, yeah, it gets some, but it's second, third, fourth, fifth. And if you get that out of sequence... Your life is going to be messed up. And I am so thankful that I am married to, and she's bracing herself, a woman that loves another man more than me. She loves Jesus Christ more than me. And I am well pleased that she does because she loves God first. She is a much better wife to me than if she loved me first. And that's the way we should all be. We have person a follower of Jesus who does what he says and has him on the throne of our life. And so all these people are following and worshipping some for the right reasons some some for the wrong. There's a large a large crowd there it says and remembering he's famous and and just before this I'll tell you what happened. We see it in Matthew 20 verse 29. As they were leaving Jericho, making their way here, a large crowd followed him, Jesus. There were two blind men sitting on the road, and they heard that Jesus was passing by, and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped, called them, and said, what do you want from me? Lord, they said, open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately they could see. And they followed him. So these two dudes are probably following along this large crowd. And you would say, well, if Jesus would show me a miracle, then for sure I'd follow him. If he would fix a few things in my life, for sure I'd dedicate myself to him. But I don't know if that is true. Because there was lots of people that Jesus did miracles in the presence of and for that didn't follow him. Uh, Lazarus is a perfect example so many people saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. People were flocking to come and see this guy that had been dead for a number of days. And John tells us that the Pharisees were there and witnessed it too. And you know what they wanted to do? It says in verse 10 of chapter 12, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well on the account that many Jesus of the Jews were coming to believe in Jesus. So they want to kill Jesus and they want to kill Lazarus. They just saw the miracle And yet they still don't follow. And there's many people, some of you, who have seen healings and seen supernatural provision. And some of you have seen the greatest miracle, that is when God takes a hard heart, a a selfish heart, and makes it a compassionate and loving heart. And still you won't believe. And that has a lot to do with authority. Because when you come to believe, follow Jesus, it means you come under his authority. And a lot of people, they only want to be under their own authority. They only want a God who will do what they say. That's why the Pharisees didn't follow Jesus or believe in him. So now we come to the last two verses. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says, The whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazarene in Galilee. Which leads us to the most important question that we ever have to answer in our lives, and that is Who is this? Who is this? Who do you say that Jesus is? That is the question that you have to answer that will have the most bearing on your life and your eternity. Some of you might answer like some of them were answering He's a prophet. Some might say he's a good person, he's a good moral teacher, he's an angel, he's a made-up person, some of you might say. And if your answer is any of those things, then you'll never experience the power, the love, the grace of the cross of Jesus. It'll just be a religious symbol that's on a wall. You'll never experience the freedom that comes from the resurrection knowing that God defeated death and he has given you eternal life and the ability through the power of his Holy Spirit to overcome the challenges and cares of this world. His spirit will never enter you. You'll always carry the weight of your sins. The burdens of life will be yours alone to carry and you will not live with Jesus in eternity. By rejecting his accessibility on earth, you lose out. And when he comes a second time, which the Bible says he will, this is what the type of Jesus you will see. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider was called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had the name written on it that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. The armies were with of heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod, and he will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. His first coming showed his love and his compassion, his patience with us. His second coming is when we will get the answer for a lot of what you're crying out for. Justice, justice, you must bring justice. But unfortunately, if we have not received his forgiveness, we will receive justice. I hope that's not you. I hope you will answer, he is my God. I hope that's what you will say. He is my savior, my creator, my sustainer, the one worthy of my praise. He is the way, the truth, the life. He, he was the one that made himself accessible to me. And so now I am his and he is mine. I love him and he protects me. He's changing me. He's correcting me. He's strengthening me. He's filling me. He's forgiving me. Don't waste God's accessibility. Don't waste what we see and this, what this Easter means. Today is the day of your salvation. Today you must cry out for God's kindness and mercy. I'm gonna pray and then Dawn is gonna come up and lead us in communion. And if you have not committed yourself to Jesus, uh, then now is the perfect time during this prayer. And if you need a communion cup, you can get one at the back. Oh, Lord Jesus I thank you that you saved me, that you sustained me, that I am yours, that I no longer carry the weight of my sin, and that you are changing me. I pray that is for everyone in this room, that they can know you love them and you care about them. And this Easter, they will really get it, and they will be joy-filled people. Lord, thank you so much that you will never give up on us. Thank you so much for dying for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit CalvaryGravenHurst.com.